This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Manic Monday, but really more like a merger Monday. Uh, Let's take a look at one of the big deals that we've been uh, watching on this Monday on aerospace giant being created as a result of United Technologies agreeing to buy Raytheon. It's an all-stock deal. It's going to form an aerospace and defense giant with about $74 in sales and one of the industry's biggest transactions ever. Let's get into it with Brooke Sutherland. She is deals and industrials columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. Also with us, Joe Levington, senior credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Always got to look at the credit picture here, uh, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. But let's first just talk about the deal. Brooke, whoa, uh, is what I like to say. (laughs) This is a big deal. It is a very big deal. And it's really sort of the final piece of the puzzle for what's been a pretty dramatic transformation at United Technologies since Greg Hayes took over in 2014. And the steps along the way have not always made the most sense to me um, initially, but this sort of ties it all together. And I really... I think, you know, one of the things that people had a lot of questions about was when they did this Rockwell Collins deal, it was very expensive. And it was sort of a bet that scale would ultimately help them in negotiations with Boeing. And, and Boeing, of course, has been pushing suppliers for more and more cost cuts. It's been encroaching on their territory um, with its push to garner more part and after uh, market service work. And I just was skeptical that that deal would make that much of a difference. Now, when you tack Raytheon onto that, you're talking about a really significant aerospace and defense behemoth. And I think they will have a lot more leverage going forward. So, Joel, come on in here, because obviously a deal of this magnitude has a lot of implications for all types of investors. How are they receiving it and what should they be thinking about? Sure. Well, for the bondholders, uh, it's a great deal if you're in United Technologies, not that great if you're Raytheon. Uh, We put out this weekend that the place to really focus on is at the longer end of the curve. So like the 25 to 30 year bonds there, there was about a 50 basis point spread uh, differential. And most of that uh, has gapped in today with the United United Technology bonds uh, in about 30 basis points and the Raytheon bonds out about 15. Uh, I think the big question is where the ratings will go. Uh, I don't think it's as clear as uh, management had suggested that it'll be a straight single A based on peer comparisons and history with the companies. Well, you know, when you think about ratings and you think about the credit side of it, I mean, Brooke, you know, the deal's got to they got to follow through on execution, as they all like to say. Is it easily done? No, and I think this is a, well, all big deals are difficult to do, but I think this one is particularly challenging because, like I said, they just did that Rockwell Collins merger, closed late last year. Rockwell Collins itself had just bought BE Aerospace for about $8.1 billion before it did the deal with Rockwell. United Technologies is also trying to split itself into three parts, so there's just a lot of different balls in the air, and I think that makes this very difficult. Obviously, these are two companies with very strong legacies, very strong culture. Mm -hmm. And that always creates a question about how the integration process is going to go. And so when something like this happens, Joel, do you see investors, especially uh, on the bond side, start to look at other names in the space and, and start to think about different forms of consolidation? Or are we sitting back to see how the dust settles here? 
Well, I think that what inve- at least bond investors are doing right now is saying, who's next? Right. right? It's really, again... So who's to- next, Joel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like if you look at the peer group, uh, especially um, considering that uh, the company said that it would try to take out a billion dollars worth of costs, I think something like Aerojet Rockendine uh, is a name that is out there that has a very heavy exposure to Raytheon and some to United Technologies. Mm-hmm. I'd also look like at a company like Arconic, uh, which was an LBO mm-hmm. candidate. It had activists in it. It has a very big aerospace component that's tied to United Technologies and to a smaller extent to Raytheon. So those are two names that I would look at. i got to ask you, because I've been thinking about all the stuff that's been written in the magazine over the last few weeks, and even this week we have a story coming. But I do wonder about the U.S.-China trade war. If there is ultimately longer term a tech war, what does this do to a name like United Technologies? I know the bulk you know, of their revenues Brooke, at this point, is in the United States, but I'm assuming Asia Pacific is a market that they look at being able to sell into, and I just wonder what could be the implications. So what they've said is that they do not need China regulatory approval to do this deal because it will involve a combination of defense primes. Right. Um, and but that I don't is, even worry about that. But if down the road it's cold between the United States and China and China pushes back on U.S. companies and their components, does it matter? Oh, no, it absolutely matters. I mean, I think what we've seen, especially lately with um, the more subtle repercussions against companies like FedEx and mm-hmm. Ford, that raises questions for a lot of manufacturing companies about what the future of their business looks like in China. I will say United Technologies is probably better positioned than most because China is very interested in building up a national uh, aircraft champion to take on Boeing and Airbus, and it will need components from United Technologies to do that. So will we see more deal-making soon around this space, Brooke? I think so. Um, you know, Joel talked about a couple of names, but I also wonder, you know, what this, what kind of pressure this puts on companies like Honeywell right. and GE. Yeah. Um, Which you, they United Technologies to get... tried to buy a few years ago, right? Honeywell actually tried to buy United or, Technologies. Or that's so right. that's uh, it it'll be interesting to see. That was obviously under a different CEO. Now they have a new CEO, Darius Adamczak, who's very much more focused on smaller software bets. So this would be a significant departure for him to do a really big aerospace deal. But I do wonder if... You know, these companies start to think maybe they might get left behind and start to think they need a little bit more scale. Joel, 20 seconds. In terms of the credit picture, what do you want to keep a watch on when it comes to this as this deal works its way through? I think uh, critically is the S&P rating where you have a three-notch differential. My guess is that this actually turns out to be an A- minus or weaker than what the, rate, what the company has said. All right, good stuff. All Thank right. you, guys. Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Brooke Sutherland, Deals and Industrials Columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Both here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thank you both. Certainly watch this space literally and figuratively. I love the headline to this story. I mean, I would love it anyway, but the headline really grabs you. Hudson's Bay holders get a go-private escape from retail carnage. Deal making at its best. Scott DeVoe here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He wrote this story. It's about Hudson's Bay. Scott, remind us what this company is and why it's had so much trouble. Well, I think most people in New York would probably recognize it as the owner of Saks Fifth Avenue. Um, uh, They bought that a few years back. Um, And the reason why they've suffered uh, so much is because of the same reason most retailers have is that investors are fleeing the sector, um, you know, as as returns um, come under pressure from on online retailers uh, like Amazon and what have you. 
And also under pressure from the investment side by activists, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Which is your milieu. (laughs) One of them, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) One of your many. Well, this wasn't initially, though, what the chairman wanted to do, right? There's like, he tried to cut costs. He did that. He sold off assets. He did that. Check, check. (laughs) And then it was like, what? It was was 18 months, uh, basically, of trying to correct the operations, refocus on North America, you know, sell assets, sell properties, repurpose properties. And all the while, the stock just kept going down and down and down uh, with, you know, in tandem with the rest of the sector. I do wonder, like, you know, giving a company, taking it out of the public space and the investor space and giving it some time to figure its way out. Because, I mean, some of the assets, right, are well-known brands that maybe this is what it needs to kind of get back on track. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a pretty strong argument to be made in a lot of cases where uh, an industry or, you know, a company in particular is suffering um, and trying just about anything to, you know, correct how the public perceives their stock. Um, and, you know, that kind of pressure uh, is pretty difficult in the public realm. But you can try new things in a private uh, setting that right. you might not be able to do in a, in a public setting. So tell us about the investors who he is teaming up with, because one probably less familiar name, but another that people know from a different perspective. Well, WeWork, obviously. Yeah. I think that um, that's the name that jumps out. And you'll recall that you know, they, they were able to sell one of their property, the, the Lord & Taylor mm-hmm. uh, building in Manhattan, to WeWork to, so that they could repurpose that. So it's a mixed-use space, um, you know, obviously with WeWork offices and Lord & Taylor retail. Um, well, and it takes me back, Carol, to that big WeWork story that we had in the magazine. I mean, this sort of investment angle is one of their big ambitions here. So it's right. interesting to see this uh, put to work. Roan Capital, we've seen them, I believe, around the Nestle deal before. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah. I believe so. They, they're not, again, they're not as uh, well known right. as either, you know. Uh, Richard Baker, you know, he's been the the face of Hudson Bay for quite a long time, or WeWork, so. Is this the right mix? It feels a little bit like a soup. A couple different (laughs) (laughs) players, you kind of throw in a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Yeah, exactly. That's the name of Carol's Garage Band, (laughs) Capital Soup. (laughs) I think there's there's a lot of value in the real estate of Hudson Bay um, because they have these really good central locations all across North America. The problem is they don't need the amount of space that they once did. So when you go into a department store, you don't need three or four or five floors of clothing to shop from because, um, you know, obviously there's so much more online retail that's going on. And so repurposing this with a partner like WeWorks would obviously unlock a lot of the value um, in that real estate that, you know, is basically dead while it's it's sitting there with mannequins in it. So talk to us about the activist angle to this. Is this, would this be considered a win at this point? Well, it's kind of a funny situation because, uh, things have gone quiet on the uh, on the activists. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in Canada, obviously, there's a much higher thresh- threshold of disclosure. So you have to have 10% before you uh, have to disclose, whereas in the U.S. it's 5%. So we weren't exactly sure where Jonathan Lid and his uh, Land and Buildings Fund was mm-hmm. with this. But, you know, a lot of the things that they've done over the last 18 months were things that they resisted. Uh, that he suggested originally. So now the company will tell you that they did this on their own. They were planning to do it all their own. But, you know, in January 2018, he said insiders could take this thing private. You know, it cost Check. About four, yeah, it cost about <laughs> $400 million to do it. You know, you should sell off 
he said sell off Sachs. Um, you know, they haven't done that, but he did say the Lord and Taylor uh, office or the, the Manhattan yep. building should be sold. Check that. Yeah. And so you kind of go through the whole thing and you're, you're looking at a roadmap that was kind of put out for them yeah. uh, that they resisted at the time. But they're selling assets also in Germany, right? So right. real estate and retail. And that has to be – that has to get done in order for this to get done. Right. And that was another thing that Land and Buildings actually suggested was sell the European division. So, But they almost in tandem today announced these two uh, situations. So in order for the take private – uh, transaction to occur, they need the proceeds from the sale of the European division mm-hmm. in order to capitalize the transformation plan. So if they don't get that, then this take private doesn't happen. Can't you see the whiteboard? Like, oh, you know, okay, man. so you, we're going to do this, we're yeah. going to bring in this person, <laughs> and the, but it yeah. looks like they may get it yeah. done. It's okay. great stuff. Scott DeVoe, yeah. deals reporter for Bloomberg. The story, Hudson's Bay holders get a go private escape from retail carnage. It's a must read. So the U.S.-China trade war continues. Uh, we still have some back and forth. But meantime, there have been many discussions, uh, a lot written, too, about when it comes to companies shifting supply chains out of China as a result of the heightened tensions. It's not so easy. And writing just about that is Andy Brown. He's Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We have – hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. We've had a lot of discussions, Andy, with CEOs of companies. And they're talking about how, you know, companies, CEOs, executives have to make decisions about these heightened tensions and that they're going to have to start shifting supply chains. It's not so easy to do, though, is it? This is perhaps one of the most complicated decisions that a CEO is ever likely to have to take. I mean, if you're making toys or bicycles or shoes relatively straightforward, if you're making anything high-tech, you're talking about investing hundreds of millions of dollars in diversifying your supply chain, moving out of China and building something new elsewhere. Right. And building something by virtue of the fact of how much it's going to cost, building something that you're committed to for some amount of time. This is not something that you can just sort of do one thing today and the next thing next month and switch it back and forth. These are long-term investments, right? Sure. I mean, there's the, the perhaps the best example of that is Samsung, which pulled out of China and is manufacturing its smartphones and regular phones now in Vietnam. But it took them years to achieve. They built whole cities down in Vietnam. They put in roads and power stations and cargo facilities at the airport. They have to train workers. This is a multi-year, hundreds of millions of dollar exercise. What, and what I found fascinating, too, about what you wrote is you talk about the Chinese workforce in particular and the skills that they have and how that has been, you know, has worked out so well as people have diverted some of their manufacturing over to China. It has made a lot of sense. And it's hard to undo that. We don't necessarily have those workers here in the United States. Right, because many of those skills were transferred from the United States to China. That was what opening up the China market, that was the promise of the China market. You moved your factory, and you didn't just move your machinery. You brought your engineers in who taught the Chinese how to do it. So there was knowledge transfer as well as technology transfer. 
tell us about this French fashion designer because I, I don't think I fully appreciated some of the complexities and maybe even the difficulties and, and I dare say some of the absurdities of, of all of this until I read this anecdote. Tell us that story. Yeah, so I ran into a French fashion designer who was kind of priced out of the China market. So like many manufacturers, he's thinking, okay, where do I go? Vietnam is a is a great choice. I mean, it's near China. Um, it has a, it's a sizable uh, country. You can find uh, well-qualified, good, well-qualified workers. Uh, but then he'd figured out, actually, while he was putting together his fashion collection for the, for the, for the Paris uh, spring, spring show, uh, he couldn't find zippers. Okay, so, you know, he finally has to get on a plane, go back to Dongguan in Guangdong province, where he used to make his clothes, his dresses and his jackets and so on, buy the zippers, put them in two, two suitcases, hand carry them back to Vietnam. Then he has a similar problem with lace and he has another problem with embroidery and the fancy buttons that he uses and it just struck me that you know something as relatively straightforward as putting together of putting together a fashion yeah. uh, you know uh, a, 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 a collection is really much more complicated than you might think does this give china the upper hand then Look, nobody, the fact is that nobody is actually, very, very few companies are pulling out of China. So uh, there, there are very good reasons for this. I mean, number one, China has the world's largest markets. If you're, if you're a auto manufacturer, you're not going to pull out of China because Chinese car markets are bigger uh, than the U.S. market, Europe, European markets, and Japan combined. Um, what they are doing, what we're seeing actually is an end of global manufacturing. So these globalized uh, supply chains that literally span the whole planet are breaking apart with their fracturing. So companies are now looking at having a supply chain for the Americas, one for Europe, one for Asia, and that Asian one, more likely than not, is going to be in China. But that kind of makes sense, right? That whole idea of manufacturing to where you're selling, I guess as workforces, you know, are costing more kind of around the globe, even in emerging developing markets, right? It kind of makes sense to just manufacture closer to where you're selling. Right. So in terms of speed, in terms of efficiency, in terms of being near your customers, it all makes sense. So what's happened is that Donald Trump has accelerated a trend Mm -hmm. that was already there. And so give us a sense, sort of stepping back a little bit, of where you see these talks at this point. You know, there is some back and forth a little bit this morning that I saw about President Trump saying, well, if President Xi doesn't show up at the G20 or we don't get to meet, then tariffs go back on. Like, what are the what are the elements, the latest elements of this that catch your attention the most? Well, now you have a figure like Steve Mnuchin, who has been regarded up until as, as being quite a moderate, saying, well, you know, if China's not ready to go back to the negotiating table, well, we'll just put tariffs up. I mean, that's a good option for us. So, um, you know, the U.S. side seems to be hanging top. Much rise on this summit. Uh, yeah. uh, the well, G20. How do you see it? How do you, like, look at the G20? And is it going to be this kind of, you know, it's, here it is, this grand meeting of global leaders. Is it an opportunity for both of them, to some extent, save face, do some grand gesture, grand deal, and get it done? 
uh, highly unlikely that <laughs> you've these said two that before. You still think get together that? And, yeah. do, and do the deal because behind the trade problem are a whole set of other other problems. Right now, it's extremely difficult for these two figures to back down without appearing to be weak. Right. Well, and you look at what happened with all the gamesmanship and brinksmanship even around Mexico, and you start to see this template. We talked a little bit about this uh, earlier in the show where, you know, Trump, the Trump administration administration essentially says, well, that we can at least spin that as that worked, you know, sort of the, the threatening and the, and all of that. China feels like a lot more complicated in this regard, right? Right. I think the lesson that China takes away from that is is rather different. Yes. I mean, the issue with Mexico had nothing to do with trade. Right. This is trade being weaponized for another purpose, which was to fix the immigration problem. So China looks at that and says, well, it doesn't really matter what we give away. You know, maybe they'll come back and ask for more in the context of Taiwan or the South China Sea or some unrelated geopolitical issue. I think that makes a trade arrangement with China much less likely. The United States comes across as being a far less credible and reliable negotiating partner. It's the art of the deal. The terms can be, right? Whatever you want them to be. (laughs) Um, Always good to check in with you. Andy, thank you. We really appreciate it. Andy Brown, his editorial director at Bloomberg New Economy in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You know, one of the criticisms leveled at Silicon Valley, Carol, is like, there's just not enough money. <laughs> not enough breaks? Right. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know. I know you are. Uh, so here's a new one. Uh, it's a really, really good story in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's available right now on the Bloomberg and Bloomberg.com. Ben Steverman, he wrote this story. An eight-figure IPO windfall can mean a zero-digit tax bill. He's here in our studio with us, as is Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. Ben, let me start with you. This is a little bit of a, wait, what? So no taxes for a big Silicon Valley IPO? I don't get it. Yeah, this is a provision that got – it's been on the books for 25 years, but it got a lot more generous in 2010. And I think this was coming out of the Great Recession. Uh, Obama, President Obama and Congress were just throwing everything, anything against the wall to see what stuck. And they, were, they really wanted to incentivize investment in smaller businesses mm-hmm. and startups. And this is just incredibly generous. Basically allows you to shield $10 million in gains or 10 times your initial investment. So if you put in $40 million as a venture capital firm, you could get $400 million in gains completely tax-free. Um, no, no worries about any, any federal taxes. So, Joel, come on in here because I have to think when you saw this, this it's kind yeah. of a hate read. Yeah. Kind of a hate read. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like, oh, how they get that yeah. on top of everything else? It's like a twofer, you know. It's like you got the IPO, you made the, and then you get to keep it all. So I think I think that's where where, where I came in. Yeah. On it was like just the natural reaction at this moment in time when people are, you know, some people are getting really fortunate, and then on top of that, it's like, oh, here's some gravy for your good fortune, and that's a big fortune, right? right. So, so how do you, what do you think of the the acronym? Qualified small business stock, QSBS, doesn't roll off the tongue. QSBS? I mean, is it really BS? Another part of its BS is that it's small business, right? I mean, the vast majority of small businesses will never qualify for this. They're just not organized in the way that can take advantage of it. Silicon Valley, 
they set up these corporations, and they're they're one of the only industries, and, at least so and, far, that is, that's eligible. And that's the key, right? It's the C corporations that benefit from this. Yeah. And most small businesses are really not that. Right. So it's, the vast majority. It's a little bit of a, I don't know, Trojan horse. So who wrote it? Well, what I, senators got certain support that I, wrote it? I definitely think Silicon Valley <laughs> uh, had some had some say. lobbyists who who did a good job and and earned their pay that day that this this bill was passed. Um, it's kind of a funny thing where it, you know it's supposed to incentivize investment, but it's actually very complicated. We're talking about it in very broad strokes now. Yeah, um, and you know it's not as if. Really, it was very obscure. Like people just didn't know this existed until maybe a few years ago in Silicon Valley, and in the rest of the country, it's still. You ask your random accountant, they might not know what this is. And it's um, been around for a while, though, too, right? It goes back to the '90s, right? Yeah. Clinton had a hand in this. Obama had a hand in this. So this isn't you been know around, and right? Then, and then it just kind of kept tweaking over time and made yeah. permanent in 2015. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but all right, but. As you say, the bad news for many tech billionaires is that they may still owe California taxes on their gains. Yeah. Can't escape wah, that. Wah, wah. Yeah. California has this stuff figured out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and they're doing well because of, because of this, I think. But yeah, thirteen percent is the highest tax rate in California, so you still have to pay that if you are if you live in California or in, incomes coming from a California company. But your federal taxes, you're fine. And then most states in the union, the vast majority, except for a few, like don't have to worry about it at all. So you did some math in the story. How big of a windfall could this be for someone or even a family? Well, so as I said, it's 10 times your initial investment. So that could be up to probably 400, 500 million if you really did this right. But that's, those are cases are rare. But the other thing you can do is you can set up trusts and say you have, mm. say you have three kids, you can set up three trusts for each of your kids, transfer the stock into them. So now what may say you were going to have a $10 million benefit, you have a $40 million benefit now, um, there's, and the lawyers and the accountants are getting very creative about how to use this because Silicon Valley has had years to sort of figure out right. how, to, how to make the most of this. It's, all, it's also such a big reminder of how powerful the venture capital industry has been over time in Washington to really position the industry as the engine of innovation, right. job creation, and, and, and even when you go back right. to the – yes, Get the structure right, and then you have a platform, right. and then how many things can you put through that platform? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. What did you call it? A hate moment? Hate read. Hate read. Oh, hate read. Yeah, you're welcome. It's my favorite moment of the day. Yeah, hate read. <laughs> hate read. Hate read. There you go. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg <laughs> Business Week. Ben Steverman, author of this week's hate read in Bloomberg Business Week. Silicon Valley wins big. I can see my daughter saying that. Boy, Mom, that's a hate that's read. That's a hate like, read. It's such a great expression. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Let's get into the discussion of what's going on in the market trade, where we go from here. Hillary Kramer is president and chief investment officer at A&G Capital Research, back with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Nice to have you back. 
It's a pleasure to be here, Carol. So, you know, let's just talk about last week, first of all, if we may. I mean, right now we're off our highs of the session, but we're still seeing gains uh, across the board. But we were up 4.7% on the Dow. We were up 4.4% on the S&P and almost 4% higher on the NASDAQ. So we're back above or back near those levels, our highs of the overall market trade. Um, Is this the right trade? Is it the right priced trade? Given that the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell will be cutting rates a quarter point, who knows, even half a point, uh, this makes total sense. It allows multiples to expand. It's all Fed-driven, and these are understood that it's going to happen. Now there's, you know, even Powell himself seems to be thinking that he um, overshot last year. You know, so two-and-a-half Fed funds rate, we're never going to see higher than that. Money is cheap. It's going to still keep piling in. Uh, You just have to look at what stocks are hitting 52-week highs by 20 30%, you know, above. You You look at MasterCard. PayPal, American Express, Visa, all of these companies are doing well because money is cheap and it's flowing. And so if you're sitting inside the Fed and you're making the case for a cut, what's the data that you're looking most specifically at? What has changed most markedly that gives you confidence that this would be the right way forward? Tweets. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Not that unemployment number last week. No. It 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 it's really politically driven yeah. at this point. You Amazing. know, look, Powell wants to keep his job. He wants to see the market stay, stay strong through the election and it it um it's just it we've seen this we've seen this play before. Well, it's interesting too and you say replenish the high growth side of your portfolio again. So go after those high beta names at this point. High beta. And I really think that there's some opportunity here in your biotechs. And the reason is that while we've all been looking at beyond me, you know, doing an IPO and Zoom, which I like, ZM, you know, you have companies that went that went public that did IPOs last March, April. Hillary Kramer is still with us from ANG Capital Research. So I we were talking about tech and biotech, but I want to ask you about Beyond Meat. I, I gotta understand like what's going on when you look at that and that meteoric rise to say the least, what do you make of it? Um the that the market's looking to bring companies higher, that there haven't been enough companies public, that there's complete demand in the area of uh organics, vegetarian, but you look at Beyond Meat, you 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 do a store check and you'll see the big names are Morningstar, um Jardine, uh the the Whole Foods uh logo, it's Whole Foods generic, all of mm-hmm. this. And uh, it's just that everyone's really just chasing. And here you have other companies that no one's chasing. I mean, it's really a market that's driven by algorithms and by chasing. And and those algorithms aren't programmed so sophisticated in many ways. They're just chasing momentum. But wait, Beyond Meat is up. Lyft is still down 21% since its IPO this year. So how do you kind of break that? You say that, you know, investors are starved for new new offerings and yet... Lyft, they're not star for that one. Well, Lyft and Uber, the whole problem there, as we know, is, you know, we're not, even though we love momentum and we love to make money, we we aren't ridiculous in the sense that we we get that the price and the valuation was completely ridiculous and that it became a game of cashing out the 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 fast money and the private equity and venture capital money that went in there. But 
you know what? There's good news. To me, the good news is I am going to buy into Chewy.com, C-H-W-Y, on Friday. There's no question about it. Everyone I know from cats with diabetes the online to those pet that retailer. have... A, yes, um, that was bought by PetSmart. You know, it's going to be spun out. The the sales are three point five billion, right? From originally two hundred million in two thousand fourteen. It seems, yeah, it's profitable. Let's put it this way: if you base it on revenue growth rather than profitability growth, it's off the charts. Which means well, you watch. really want to get into that. It's going to be a great one. All right, Hillary Kramer, thanks so much for riding away as we had to follow the news today. President and Chief Investment Officer at A and G Capital Research in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.